0: This teaching comes to you from the team at St. Mark's, Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. Today I want to talk about uh, Christianity and violence. And I want to begin by just telling you a bit of a story of this this talk and how it's evolved. Um, So I was supposed to be preaching at the 8 o'clock service this morning, uh, but I was in Cairns yesterday, not sunning myself having a holiday, but I was speaking at a, a weekend away for another church. And Jetstar cancelled my flight. So um, luckily, some of you may know, my dad's a minister. So I rang him up and I said, if I send through my sermon, can you preach it at 8 o'clock? Because I can't get there till the 10 o'clock service this morning. So he said, sure. So I sent it through and uh, he came here at our 8 o'clock service and he preached my sermon. But he improved it. Of course, he couldn't leave it alone and he left his notes for me. And he has really improved it. So uh, this is kind of both of our sermon, and uh, I, I'm very pleased. There's some additions. I'm not going to tell you which bits are his and which bits are, which bits are mine. Uh, let's pray before we get into, into this subject. Our Lord and loving Heavenly Father, we do ask for your, uh, your insight, your wisdom, as we consider this, uh, this often terrible uh, and um, awful subject of the relation of violence to Christianity. Uh, give us insight, and in, in the name of your Son we pray. Amen. I should say also that uh, at the end we will be having a Q&A, so if you've got some questions as you go through, you might drop them down. There should be pens at the ends of the pews. If you'd like to do that, and uh, you'll have a chance to ask some questions. Now, almost a thousand years ago, the first crusade, inspired by the preaching of Pope Urban II, the Pope had actually whipped up the crusade, reached Jerusalem, determined to liberate it from Muslim control. Muslims had control of Jerusalem, and this was the mission of the First Crusade. One eyewitness account describes the scene when the Crusaders got to Jerusalem. And he's quite happy about this, by the way. This is not, he's, not, he's not kind of repentant about this, this uh, uh, explanation whatsoever. Early on the sixth day of the week, we again attacked the city on all sides. But as the assault was unsuccessful, We were all astounded and fearful. However, when the hour approached on which our Lord Jesus Christ deigned to suffer on the cross for us, our knights began to fight bravely in one of the towers. One of our knights clambered the wall of the city and then our men followed, killing and slaying even to the temple of Solomon where the slaughter was so great that our men weighted in blood up to the ankles. Another author wrote, "'Neither women nor children were spared.'" Once again, he thought that was a good thing, an honourable thing. Now, this is sadly not an isolated incident in Christian history. The Emperor Constantine, the Emperor of Rome, who became a Christian, he painted crosses, Christian signs on the shields of of, of his soldiers, Need we mention the atrocities of the conquistadors in South America, the terrors of the Spanish Inquisition, or the witch hunts in Salem in New England, or the Puritan Oliver Cromwell in the 17th century used the Bible to justify genocide against the Catholics in Ireland. Last year, I was just speaking to someone before, I went to Zurich, and I went to Zurich to visit the church where a great theological hero of mine, Ulrich Zwingli, preached. Uh, the gospel in Switzerland, and it was great to see where he kicked off the Reformation in Switzerland. But there's a spot by the river in Zurich, and that's the spot from which they chucked the Anabaptists, who were a group of uh, a breakaway group of uh, of Christians, chucked them into the into the river to drown them because of their heresy. Closer to our own time. Catholics and Protestants have only recently emerged from a decades-long violent struggle in Northern Ireland. A theologian called Miroslav Volf, uh, from Croatia, he wrote this. He said, beginning at least with Constantine's conversion, that's going back to the 300s AD, so 1700 years ago, beginning at least with Constantine's conversion, the followers of the crucified have perpetrated gruesome acts of violence under the sign of the cross. So it seems like an open and, shut, open and shut case, right? Christians and their churches have endorsed unjust and excessive violence, and not just incidentally, but in the name of their faith. Perhaps the hymn we should be singing is John Lenn- Lennon's Imagine. Imagine no religion. Do you remember how it goes? It's easy if you try. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You who, you know that bit. <laughs> Maybe that's the hymn we should sing. Surely there's something poisonous then about Christianity. A Nobel Prize-winning physicist called Stephen Weinberg. He says this. He says, with or without religion, you got good people doing good things and bad people doing bad things. But for good people to do evil things, that takes religion. Uh, You might have heard something like that from your Uncle Barry, or from Joanne in the next desk at work, or from someone at school. I've certainly encountered it in the media and uh, on Twitter. Whenever I engage in anything on Twitter, someone will bring up, oh, Christianity causes wars. Religion causes wars, and Christianity is, of course, a religion, so therefore it does the same. So here's a question for us. And from what we've heard, it's a pretty good question. It's a serious question. Is there something about Christianity that causes violence? Is there something inherent in Christianity that leads us to do violent things, that not only fails to prevent violence, but makes it much, much worse? Now, some writers... Like the atheist Sam Harris, you may have heard of him. He wrote a book called The End of Faith. He he has argued that it's monotheism that's the problem. Belief in one God. He says belief in one God has many advantages over polytheism, belief in many gods, as in the ancient world, the Romans and the Greeks, and today with Hinduism. Monotheism has got many advantages. But, he said, monotheists who believe in one God can't accept that their God is one God amongst many. If you believe that your God is the creator of heaven and earth and is the only true God, then you're making an exclusive claim for your God over and against other gods. Monotheism doesn't really like competition very much. It's not very tolerant or accommodating. It names as the first sin false worship. I've met people who are polytheists people who are of Hindu extraction, mostly, of course, from India. And they're quite interested in Christianity and they're quite happy to add another god. If you're a polytheist, what's another god between friends? Just add another one in. There are thousands, they say, even millions of gods in Hindu worship. But monotheists, well, that's very different. There's either the true god or there's false gods and... The essence of sin, really, is to worship the wrong God, as far as monotheists go. And so Harris and others have argued that this idea, common in the religions Judaism and Islam and Christianity, monotheism, leads to their violent tendencies. It makes them violent. The desire to protect the uniqueness, the oneness of God, leads to this exclusion, by violent means if necessary, of all that is felt to corrupt it. War then can become a religious duty, a holy war, in other words. We hear the word jihad from from the Islamic tradition, but the word in the Christian tradition is crusade. Whatever nice and peaceful teachings can be found in religious books, they are obscured, says Harris, by the fanatical desire to protect the oneness of God. Add to this, then, The bloody sacrifice at the heart of Christianity and you've got a dangerous recipe. Christianity, Christians gather around a cross. The Pope, Pope Urban II, in the First Crusade, he invited the knights, the warriors of Europe, to take the cross as a sign of their dedication to their bloody cause. The cross is then an ever-present reminder to Christians, say people like Harris, of the bloodthirstiness of God, and the fact that the world is out to get Christians, and so leads to a kind of paranoia amongst Christians. If God used violence, well then surely it's okay for us to use violence too. And the blood flows as a result. So what can we say in response to these charges? You might just think for a minute, what could we say? What could Christians say in response to the kind of thing we've heard here? And please, if you're listening on the tape at home, don't switch off now. It's impossible to deny the fact that Christians have at times endorsed and carried out appalling acts of violence in the name of the crucified Christ. But it is simply not the case that there is something inherent in Christianity that makes it so. In fact, quite the opposite. I want to make three points. The first of them is this. Christianity has been co-opted for violence by those who are interested in power, those who want power. But take away the Christianity and you still find empires, nations, political factions and tribes sponsoring violence. In fact, take away the Christianity and it doesn't get better. It gets worse. The first emperor to become a Christian, Constantine, did so because he won a military victory after he painted Christian signs on the shields of his soldiers. So he made Christianity the official religion of his empire. And even down to the present day, there are officially Christian nations. Nations that call themselves Christian, who actually have a, they are officially Christian in their, in their constitutions. The United Kingdom is one, Denmark is another, that's my heritage, Greece is another, and Argentina yet another, just a name but four. Now while on the one hand much good can come from the church influencing the state. It's also the case that the state or the empire or the nation will try to co-opt Christianity for its own ends, to justify its own often violent actions. Empires and nations and states are very good at co-opting Christianity to do their dirty work, to get church leaders to say what they want them to say, to bless their guns. Religions, including Christianity, have then been associated with war and violence. But it's far too simplistic to say, then, that Christianity causes wars. In fact, there's a, a study done at Bradford University in the United Kingdom which showed that if, on a fair reading of history, only about 5% of wars in all history could be described as religious, let alone Christian. If there is a common factor in human conflict, in bloodshed amongst human beings. It's not religion, it's national or tribal identity. It's politics, in other words. The supposedly peaceful secular liberal democracies of the last 200 years have been no less bloodthirsty, even more so, arguably, than religious regimes. And avowedly atheist governments have been much, much worse, if you think of what went on in Eastern Europe in the 20th century. Extraordinary bloodshed in the name of uh, atheistic governments. Should we be surprised? Not really if we believe the Bible that we are a fallen and sinful race and we'll use the opportunity to abuse power when we have it. Now, the classic case for Christianity as warmonger, that's often cited is the Thirty Years' War. The Thirty Years' War was a war between 1618 and 1648. It took place, hence the name, 30 Years' War, unlike the 100 Years' War, which went for about 120 years. This one did go for 30, that set period, um, 16, 18 to 48, and it happened in Europe. And it was really a series of wars between different nations. And what's happened in the, the usual reading of history is that, oh, this was Catholics versus Protestants, Christians fighting against each other in the name of religion, in the name of their faith. And because of that terrible period, it was an awful, awful war awful series of wars, devastating Europe, because of that, that's why we have secular government. That's why we had to get rid of religion, particularly Christianity, out of uh, out of our governments. We had to get rid of it, make sure we were as secular as possible. But if you actually analyze that period closely, you'll discover that all throughout that war, there were Catholics and Protestants on the same side against other Catholics and Protestants. There there was even one alliance with the, with the Ottoman Empire, who were Muslims. So it wasn't really a religious war at all. It was a war for national identity. It was a war where little countries, little states in Europe, were trying to find out who they were. It wasn't a war about Christian faith whatsoever. It was a far more complex reality than the story that's been told. So that's the first, the first point here. The second point is, the Christianity does make universal claims, but it makes them in the name of love and peace. It does make universal claims. The excessive violence that mars-, mars some phases of Christian history is actually at odds with Christianity itself. There is no endorsement of the idea of holy war in the Bible, unlike in some other religious books. There is no endorsement of the idea of a holy war. The wars of conquest in the Old Testament are not seen in the New Testament as a pattern for Christian expansion as they were taken in the Crusades. That's not the way the Bible reads at all. In fact, just the opposite. When Jesus told his disciples, his, his followers, to go and make disciples of all nations, he did so inviting them to not take up the sword, beat everyone over the head, but to preach to try and convince people, to persuade them. Jesus was a king and was proclaimed as Lord by his followers, but he was a king like no other. In John chapter 6, verse 15, we read that people wanted to come and make him king by force. he just fed the 5,000, right? It was pretty impressive, and they thought, here's our king. But Jesus didn't accept their offer. In fact, he withdrew to a mountain in order to avoid being made king by force. When Peter drew a sword to defend Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus rebuked him, told him to put his sword away. Recently, the Chinese president, uh, Xi Jinping, said, according to the Wall Street Journal at least, in the West, you have the notion that if somebody hits you on the left cheek, you turn the other cheek. In our culture, we punch back. Now, I'm not sure that his reading of Western culture is really that accurate, I'm not sure that Jesus' teaching has affected Western culture as much as he thinks. But even the president of communist China, atheistic China, knows the central figure in Christianity taught against violent retaliation. Even he knows that. What he doesn't perhaps know is that China is probably more Christian these days than many Western countries, there being something like 100 million Christians in China at the moment. Christianity does make a universal claim. It is for everybody, regardless of race or gender or status. Christ is proclaimed as Lord of all, not Lord of some. He's not merely our personal Lord and Saviour. All nations and all peoples are called to know him. It's a terrible distortion of Christianity to say that it's a tribal or ethnic religion or that it's a religion belonging to one group of people, one, group of langu- uh, one language. But clearly, Jesus and his followers only ever endorsed preaching the gospel accompanied by acts of sacrificial love, even for our enemies, as the way that Christianity was to expand. Which leads me to my third point. If we are to recognise... Jesus is one of the great teachers of peace in human history. As most people accept, as clearly the president of China accepts, then we cannot pretend that his belief in God, his belief in one God, was incidental to his teaching. Jesus was not some first century hippie. He was not some first century John Lennon just telling everyone to be kind of kind to one another. Remember, he was Jewish to the bootstraps. Jesus believed in the one just God who made heaven and earth, and he was the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. For him, love of the one God and love of neighbor, even the neighbor who is your enemy, were inextricably linked. You couldn't have one without the other. You couldn't pull one ingredient out. For Jesus, we love our neighbor because we love God. Or rather, because God loves us and we learn it from him. The gospel that the apostle Paul preached was a declaration of the supreme power of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. But this ruler's rule for Paul was symbolized by his death as a victim at the hands of the emperor out of love. And Christians are likewise called to represent this one Lord, not by acts of violence and unjust oppression, but by living lives that look like Jesus' life, and by speaking his name, telling his story to the war-torn and violent world. It is a tragedy that we haven't always done so. It's a disaster that Christians haven't always done so. It's a terrible distortion of the Christian faith that people could imagine that Christianity endorses violence. But when Christians have done these things, even when popes and bishops and preachers have done so, they've misrepresented the Lord they've claimed to serve. As God's word says to us from that second reading we have, it's an extraordinary reading from Romans, we pay no one evil for evil, Live peaceably with all, so far as it is up to you. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, this is how you should treat your enemy. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap coals on his head. And I think Paul means there. You will purify him. You will turn him in some way. Do not be overcome by evil, he said. Overcome evil by good. Okay, we're going to have some time now for questions. Yeah, I I asked this question of Arthur. You know, imagine I break into his apartment and I want to kill him. Um, we hope it's just imaginary. No, it is. It's 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 imaginary. I, right, thank um, you. <laughs> yeah, but um, you know, what 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 would you actually do in that situation? I mean, particularly in America, they've got laws where you can defend yourself in your own home, stand your ground, those kinds of things. We've just seen six thousand Nigerian Christians killed. Um, you know, I think you're spot on with what the Bible teaches. It's just very hard to except at a visceral, emotional level. So have you got any comments? Yes, so I might just uh, uh, repeat it a little bit because uh, you were a bit quiet. But there, So um, what happens when there's a, there's a, a, a moment where self-defence is necessary, um, like there's a violent attack? Um, for instance, there are 6,000 Christians that have recently been killed, I believe, I understand, in Nigeria. Um, so what, what are the Christians to do then? Are they just to let that occur according to what Jesus has taught? I have to say, it's not an abstract question for the Christians in Nigeria, of course, and my friend uh, um, Ben Kwashi, who's an archbishop in the north of Nigeria, has been facing this question for a number of decades, and uh, he—he's really uh, there's been uh, ongoing uh, Islamic attacks on Christian churches, including burning churches, uh, taking uh, young girls away. Uh, it's been a horrendous situation. He's really been working hard to stop young groups of Christian men gathering together to act in a retaliatory, terroristic way in response, because he feels like that is not a gospel response to this. Um, I think it's entirely appropriate to take defensive action and also to seek justice from human rulers. It's interesting that in Romans chapter 13, just after the passage we had read, Paul says, um, the emperor has been set up. Now, the emperor, right? The pagan emperor of all people who unjustly killed Christians. And he says, that emperor has been set up in order to stop uh, the tide of wickedness in the world. And so you should respect and honour the emperor. So I do think it is is entirely right to use appropriate methods to restrain evil. But the retaliatory nature, the kind of eye-for-an-eye, tooth-for-a-tooth nature uh, of our felt response to acts of wickedness like that is something Christians would want to avoid. Uh, We want to think creatively, too. I mean, obviously, in the instance when someone's come to attack you, you, you... You've got to to think clearly then and act as you may. But Christians, like my friend in Nigeria, he's got to find a way in which to subvert the kind of violent uh, uh, action and reaction. Um, One way they do that is, of course, by looking after um, the children of their enemies, exercising charity towards those who exercise no charity towards them as a way of undermining the whole thing. But that's a a much longer-term strategy But it kind of reflects what Jesus teaches, I think. Yeah. Simon. Uh, So it might be partially building on that situation. Um, But when uh, not just Christians, but other people uh, are at stake, is, you know, say a Bonhoeffer kind of situation. Um, Bonhoeffer was allegedly, I don't know if it's true or not, but uh, involved in the plot to bomb Hitler, yes? Is that an acceptable response? Um, so the story Simon's referring to is the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a pastor and theologian in Germany in the 1930s, who was a pacifist, actually. He believed that uh, violence of any kind for Christians was not, was not permissible. And, um, but he was a leader in, the, in kind of the resistance against Hitler and decided that really Hitler needed to be taken out because uh, the evil he was doing was so excessive there was no way, there was no other option. And so he took part in a failed plot to, uh, to kill Hitler and ended up dying in prison, or being killed himself, executed himself after a couple of years in prison. Um, what about that? Well, interestingly, Bonhoeffer was very uneasy at, at saying, look, what I'm doing is I know for sure the right thing. These were extreme historical circumstances. And he said, I, I'm not going to give myself a big tick and uh, justify myself here uh, give myself, I'm, I'm not my own judge. All I do is I do what I, I, I can in this terrible circumstance. I think it's the right thing to do. And I throw myself on the mercy of God. The great thing that he kept teaching was God is a merciful God. And so, I, we, we, he just did his best in this extraordinary circumstance and he said, look, uh, I'm not proclaiming myself innocent but I know God is merciful and just and I'm forgiven in Christ's name. So that's all I can do. So, an extraordinary story and an extraordinary man, an extraordinary testimony and And yes, sometimes evil needs that kind of response. yeah Anyone else, Lydia? So in the Old Testament, we have lots of wars and battles, and even from my perception, God even advising at times through kings and prophets when there should be war, and you know and then taking the spoils for for his people, you know. And then, you know, Christ comes and in the New Testament we have a completely different message. Can you guide us in those yes. two different views? Yes. So and, yeah. yeah, so Lydia says, look, hang on, the Old Testament's full of, uh, there's some pretty violent stuff in the Old Testament. In fact, God seems to command Israel to go into the, the promised land and conquer it, all right, And uh, to clear it out and he gives it to them the simple, and also to kind of... Uh, pretty much wiped out the inhabitants there. Um, what we have to remember is that the very special historical conditions under which that took place. Um, first of all, um, God is quite clear in the, in the Old Testament that the people who inhabited that land uh, were, were a people who uh, had rejected him wholesale. There was, a, there was a sense in which this was a judgment on them. Um, second of all, it was special to this particular moment in history where he was, he was giving the people of Israel their, their land um, un, under, the, under the law, uh, bringing them up out of Egypt and putting them in so that he could use them as a sort of lesson to the rest, to the rest of humankind, it's an illustration for the rest of us. Um, so, in those special historical moments, he commands, he, he commands those, uh, that nation to be established as it was, but, but that's, nothing, that, that's not what the New Testament does. So the New Testament um, sees that as the history leading up to it, but of course then uses that language about fighting battles and stuff like that, uses it as a way of talking about our struggle against the flesh, our, our struggle against sin, for instance. And so um, there was that old hymn, Onward Christian Soldier, um, which always sounded very militaristic and a sort of marching tune, right? And it kind of picked up that idea that, Christians are fighting in a holy war, but it's not a holy war, as we know, going into battle against other nations. It's a, it's a war against, uh, against the devil himself that we're fighting. Hi. Do you think there's a case for defending not ourselves, but those who are vulnerable and can't defend themselves with violence? Could you speak up a little bit, please? Sorry. Is there a case for not defending ourselves, but those who are vulnerable and can't defend themselves with violence? Is there a case for defending not ourselves, but defending those who are vulnerable and uh, with, with violence? Um, I think I want to be careful of using the word violence um, in, that, in, in that context. It's appropriate, I think, to use force to defend the vulnerable. Of course it is. Um, now, uh, it's very difficult in the world, in the complicated world uh, we, we live in, to figure out uh, in every situation when that's justified. Um, and uh, Christian theologians have tried, since a guy called Augustine, to kind of come up with a list of sort of checklists for when you could justify going to war. And defending the innocent is kind of one of the reasons that you might, as a, as a Christian ruler, uh, you might go and you might use force, to protect, to protect innocent lives. But as we see in our world today, that's an extraordinarily difficult equation. It's, it's just very difficult. We know that with vi- violence often is, uh, o- is overused, so even when it is used justly, it's often very hard to contain it. And so this is why we must pray for people who are in government, because it is an extremely difficult responsibility if you're going to use violence and force justly, even in a a good cause like that. Yeah, anyone else? Luke. So just kind of picking up on that thread again, um, I guess what kind of advice would you give to those who currently do serve or might serve or have served in the military in the past, and who are called to certain actions of violence to either defend themselves or whatever the mission may call. Yeah. It. So, so uh, what advice would I give to people who are in uh, the armed forces, for instance, and uh, who are Christians? And my brother served in the armed forces for a while. Uh, I know members of uh, our congregation have and uh, have links to the military. I know you. Do. Um, and uh, so, so what advice? Would... Well, I think it's I think it's difficult. That is. One of the things you sign up for as a soldier is you sign up to do what the army tells you to do. You don't get to you don't get to decide what war is just, right? So you don't you don't kind of say, sorry, I'm not going to war because I don't think that's the right war. So you have to you kind of have to know that before you go in. Uh, But I think you need to be I I think that's why you should be ultra. You should really think about it very carefully because uh, you've got to you've got to think about. is is the government you're serving going to put you in a place where there's going to be inappropriate uh, violence uh, as a Christian? Now, as a Christian in the armed services, of course, what we're trying to do, you're you're using, hopefully, contained uh, force, and again, in the name of a just cause, but governments, we know, don't always get it right. So it might be that a Christian has to resign from their post or conscientiously object and I think uh, perhaps more Christians should have conscientiously objected in the past. More individual uh, Christians, um, particularly when there was there was there were really dubious uh, cases. It's very hard to see at the time, though. So my father said uh, at the time of the Vietnam War, he was a young minister then, and he preached in favour of the Vietnam War. Um, now he says now he can see that that was not a. That was not a great war to have fought. There were many mistakes made um, from the American-Australian side. But at the time, it's very hard to separate that all out. So I I don't want to be too harsh in my judgment of uh, people who are doing their best at the time uh, without all the information. Thanks for listening.